The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, over the past few shows, I one of the themes that I've been coming back to more and more is this sense that here in China, there is a profound misunderstanding of where we are in the United States, in our culture, in our politics, and we as a people. When I talk to scholars and to students and just to the guy on the street, there's just a massive disconnect. That, and I get this sense that people just don't understand where we are. Now, they definitely don't understand Trump, but they don't even understand basic American culture. And the reason I bring this up is because I think we're in very, very dangerous times now where people are making decisions about the United States at the political level, but even at the personal level. And at the same time, they're misreading us. And I was just listening to Bonnie Glazer's wonderful podcast. She is the uh, head of China Studies program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and she has the China Power podcast. And she was interviewing today an, a guest from Southeast Asia. And this guest from Southeast Asia was talking about how in Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, they too don't understand the United States. They felt that the United States used to represent free trade, democracy, open markets, protector of the international system. And they feel that that they don't represent that anymore. And there is this distance that they feel. Now, this may be a perception, but at the end of the day, there is this growing gap between the United States and the rest of the world in terms of who we are as a people who we are in our our politics, and particularly understanding the growing presence of conservative politics within the foreign policy establishment. I think that's true for Africa as well. I think it's, it's difficult for African policymakers to really gauge exactly how they should pitch their relationship with the United States at the moment, but I think that's also true for their relationship with China in lots of cases. Um, in, in, in many cases, you find Africans looking from one to the other and trying to work out exactly how to walk the line between the two of them um, and trying to work out how to engage with the two of them at the same time. So this issue came up uh, last year when the National Security Advisor of the United States, Ambassador John Bolton, Uh, unveiled what is called the Prosper Africa Strategy, which is the new U.S. strategy for Africa. Many people interpreted this less as a strategy for Africa and more as a strategy to contain China's engagement in Africa. Uh, Some experts, one who we're going to speak to today, says that is a complete misreading. Since it's been a while since we've talked about uh, the Prosper Africa Strategy, let me quickly just refresh you of the three pillars. Uh, One was advancing U.S. trade and commercial ties. Number two was countering the threat from radical Islamic terrorism and violent conflict. And number three was ensuring U.S. taxpayer dollars are used effectively and efficiently. And so we wanted to take today is to get an understanding of U.S. foreign policy in a more conservative era. And this idea is connecting Trump politics with conservative politics. Sometimes they are aligned. Sometimes they're not. So I, I'm just so excited to have on the program uh, Colonel Chris Wyatt, who is a professional military officer with more than 30 years experience in security, international development and education. Uh, he's worked in Africa, Europe, Southwest Asia, uh, also in the U.S. He has a resume that is far too long that for me to actually go through in detail. But let me just give you a few highlights to kind of set up our discussion Uh, He is an active serving officer as a colonel in the United States Army, and he's the director of the African Studies Program at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He's also a professor in the Department of National Security and Strategy there. In his experience in the field, he was the lead military advisor to the U.S. ambassador to the African Union. He also served as the U.S. Africa Command liaison officer to the African Union, He's led and managed security assistance office at the American Embassy in Kampala. Uh, Back in 2013, he coordinated and led emergency response for South Sudan, 
and the evacuation at Entebbe. Uh, he coordinated support for the African Union mission to the Central African Republic through Entebbe International Airfield. Okay, I can go on. He led counterterrorism training programs with the Uganda People's Defense Force. I mean, it is a long, long resume. Colonel Wyatt, thank you so much for joining us. We're just really honored and thrilled to have you on the program today. Well, Eric Kovas, thank you kindly. It's a, it's a great pleasure to finally have an opportunity to connect with you guys on the podcast. Been a longtime listener and have enjoyed the work that you guys do. So I'm, I'm happy to have an opportunity to contribute this morning. And also, you know, the way that I came across Colonel Wyatt, and I really encourage everybody to follow him on LinkedIn, where he posts a lot, especially so if you're into rugby as well, <laughs> it's a good source for <laughs> rugby information. So it's not just African politics and U.S. politics, but African politics, U.S. and rugby, of course. Uh, Colonel Wyatt, before we get into our discussion, I think it'd be interesting for our listeners, because even Americans, we're not familiar with the U.S. Army War College, what it does, and 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 what's the purpose of it? It might be just a good way to start our discussion about what you do in the African Studies program there, and what is the U.S. Army War College? Well, let's see. Uh, we'll start. There's there's two main programs here. There's a number of other programs. We have courses for general officers and uh, for senior non-commissioned officers. But the core part of the program that most people think of when they think of the Army War College is the resident and the non-resident program. So we have a 10-month resident program in which we bring senior lieutenant colonels, uh, or those who are promotable to colonel, or colonels, uh, full colonels, to the Army War College here in Carlisle. It's a senior service college. The Air Force and the uh, Navy also have a program, as do the Marines. And then we have uh, one of the joint service, the National Defense University. But as a senior service college, it's the last level of professional military education that is provided to military officers. Now, our program here has a strong emphasis on what we call international fellows or international students. In the past, uh, they started this about 40 years ago, bringing international students in. But in the past, we had about 35 or 40 per year. But a conscious decision was made by the U.S. Army about six or seven years ago, and we've doubled the number. Now, that sounds great, but we didn't add slots to the school. So what that means is less U.S. officers get an opportunity to attend the resident course. Now, the payoff for us is that one big part of our foreign policy focus under the last three administrations, uh, Bush, then Obama, and now Trump as well, is engagement with partners, friends, partners, and allies. So we get up to 80 foreign students here at the course, and that includes a number of Africans, anywhere between 15 or 20 every year, African students from around the continent who come here. And uh, we teach a 10-month course in which we introduce um, all sorts of things, international relations theory, national security strategy and policy, formulation, uh, theater campaign strategy, strategic leadership, a host of other things along with elective courses. For instance, uh, we have, uh, we're in the next to last term right now, and uh, next month, uh, well, less than a month, we'll start the final term. And in the final term, I'll be teaching an elective called Building Partner Capacity. That course is focused on how U.S. military uh, establishment engages with foreign friends, partners, and allies to help them develop professionalism, build capacity for counterterrorism, peacekeeping, uh, national defense, um, respect for human rights, things like that. And so that's the resident course. Uh, we have uh, up to 400 students per year, averages about 380, 385. And then we have the distance education program, which trains an, uh, or educates another three or 400 each year. And the distance education program is a two-year two program in which the students uh, enroll, and then they come for a first-year resident term for two weeks in the summertime in June. And then their final year, they come back for a final two weeks, and they graduate. And so that gets them... Um, that gets them uh, through the two-year program. And so in essence, what the U.S. Uh, Army War College is able to do is graduate somewhere between seven, 800 officers, uh, foreign and military, each year at the most senior level of professional military education, with the focus being on the strategic level of national policy and of warfare, and avoiding warfare, of course. So it's at the strategic level, because prior to this, most military officers have worked at the tactical level, at the, at the, as a company grade or field grade officer at the battalion, company, division. Uh, and perhaps some have worked at the operational level, at the theater, or a combatant command. But very few have experience at the strategic level. And when they leave here, they're likely to become general officers, or as we say, flag officers. Or they'll be advisors to those folks, helping them make the decisions, develop their plans and such. So that's really the focus of what we do. I hope that brings it in a little bit of clarity for you. So um, as, as, you know, someone who's been engaged with, with 
talking with these students about African issues, um, and you know, and 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 making Africa, you know, and dealing with lots of lots of um, African students of African extraction as well. Um, how have you seen the debates around the the Chinese engagement in Africa change over over your your time there? Well, actually, in, in some respects, and now I should mention these are my views, not the Department of Defense views, make sure we're not controversial there. But uh, from my perspective, since my time here at the War College, uh, with the end of the Obama administration and the shift to the Trump administration, in both of them, uh, from my observations, I've seen what I think to be a little bit of a troubling trend, and that is this China and this great power competition that's arisen. This, this, there seems to be a, a view that this is a Trump idea or it's neoconservative, but Actually, this predates that. This goes back to the Obama administration, this rise of China as a great competitor to the United States. And my concern uh, and what I've seen is that there's constant discussion about China and Africa and competing with the U.S. In fact, um, National Security Advisor Ambassador John Bolton's speech at the Heritage Foundation in December, if you look at that speech and you try to find Africa, it was about Africa, but it's not mentioned very often. China's mentioned 14 times. And so you can understand why people uh, get the impression that this great power competition is going on in Africa. That has been one of the changes I've seen. My African students who come here are constantly focused on that, constantly asking the question. Now, some Africans and uh, a lot of Chinese might be surprised to find that most of them are not particularly keen uh, about Chinese engagement in Africa. Some are quite fond of it. Others are not particularly keen of it. I'm talking about the African students here. Uh, that shouldn't be surprising. They're coming from military establishments, which tend to be conservative in nature. Uh, so far as the world outlook, uh, and so that that's but that has been the norm I've seen. My concern, though, is that is that I'm trying to help students look at a bigger picture here and not get focused in on the sexy new toy for the week, which is great power competition. So, in your evaluation of Ambassador Bolton's Prosper Africa strategy announcement, you wrote an article back in January called "The New Strategy Seems Less a Strategy and Much More Akin to a Philosophy for Engagement." In Africa. This was published on the War Room at the Army War College website. We'll have a link to that in the show. It was also published on Quartz as well. And so you wrote, China is not the story here. The story here is a stated position that those who work with Washington on things in their mutual interest, those who adhere to good governance, those who are helpful, reliable, regional partners, and those who do not actively work against the interests of the U.S. will be the ones who receive the bulk of U.S. assistance in Africa. So you wrote that, but then later in your piece, you also said, well, the U.S. is not asking African countries to take sides between the U.S. and China. But it sounds a little bit like if you don't line up with the U.S., then Ambassador Bolton's strategy and what you're saying as well, we will kind of pull away and it's not in our interest. Kind of flesh that out a little bit about what are the terms of engagement for interacting with the U.S. and Africa? Well, that's a fair point, uh, and it does almost sound uh, contradictory in nature, but not actually the case. What I meant in my article specifically about this is that, for instance, let me just pick two countries as an example, um, one of which we have uh, very good relations for a very long time with, another we've had good relations, and we've done many things in the security field. So, for instance, um, if you look at Botswana, which has been a longtime um, uh, partner for the United States and a reliable political and security partner, you'll find that the amount of security assistance or cooperation with Botswana, cooperation is very good, but the amount of funding that actually goes to Botswana is quite minimal. Uh, in part, that's because they're able to meet their own security needs and don't have major needs. But also, it's it's a, re a reflection of the fact that, um, that there are political objectives when it comes to foreign assistance and cooperation. So in Africa in particular, over the last couple of decades, Washington's focus has been to get our African partners to be the folks who are doing peacekeeping operations in Africa not U.S. troops or U.S. involvement, try to minimize our role uh, and allow Africans to take the lead on that. That's, that's their responsibility. That's the view in Washington. So Botswana, many years ago, received money under a program called ACOTA, the Africa Contingency Operations Training Assistance Program, which is a State Department-funded program uh, for an assistance in helping partners train peacekeeping units. Well, the intent of that program is to, you go, you send a team to a country in Africa, they do a train-up period to prepare a battalion, to go on a peacekeeping deployment. Well, Botswana is a great partner, and they received money and training assistance on their program, but they've never deployed any troops. So guess what? They're not getting any more money for that program because they're not sending troops. And that's that's kind of the quid pro quo that I'm talking about. 
Now, on the other hand, Uganda has been a longtime partner in East Africa, and we can we can debate whether it's right or wrong. There's all sorts of questions there politically. But so far as security perspective, Uganda has been a longtime partner in the United States. When we've been trying to help ameliorate the situation in Somalia with AMISOM, the African Union mission in Somalia. So the U.S. has been the key training partner for all the troop contributing countries that have gone there in terms of uh, training and also equipment in many cases. Uganda has been a partner in that. And then for the African Union Regional Task Force that was uh, assigned and developed to hunt down Joseph Kony and the Lord's Resistance Army, Ugandan People's Defense Force was a major part of that. And after the Kony in 2012 viral video that sparked U.S. foreign policy to get involved in that, in that operation, we sent special forces troops to Uganda to work with the African Union, in particular the Ugandans. And they were a key partner in that. And they've also been a partner in some other issues. Uh, now, Uganda has received endless amounts of assistance to prepare and train its forces for Somalia for the Amazon mission, received great deal of funding for the African Union mission. And what I meant by that is that in a case like that, that's a willing security partner that has shared common interest, at least in the security realm, that is likely to receive additional assistance. Another partner that uh, desperately needs assistance when it comes to security is in West Africa, in the Sahel, Niger. Niger gets a fair amount of uh, military and um, development assistance from the United States, and they've been a very helpful and cooperative partner in countering violent extremists in the Sahel, and also in, in some measure with Boko Haram, which has bled across the border from Nigeria. So partners like that are likely to see assistance from the U.S. Now, at any time, any given moment, something could happen politically that suspends assistance in any given place. But my point is that countries like that are more likely to get assistance with this mindset, this philosophy, which was presented as a strategy, than, say, Botswana, which is a, a dear friend politically and security-wise, but they're not doing the things that the U.S. foreign policy establishment is hoping to get out of Africa. Does that help clarify a little bit? Yes, I think so. Um, in you know, so as you mentioned, the the Bolton um, announcement was was last late last year. Um, what have we seen? What, which developments have we seen in in U.S. Africa policy since then? A lot of people, um, you included, have pointed out that it's it was more of a kind of a position setting rather than a, a, a you know a, a developed policy statement in or a detailed policy statement then um how has it developed since since that first announcement up to now well that's that's a fair question and i think that's something we're all waiting for an answer on uh that's something i've cautioned people in in conversation with about this is that you know it's it's um here's here's the reality that folks need to address and and be cognizant of uh, Africa, despite its importance, has rarely risen to the level where it's been ex any, there's been any existential threat from Africa, emanating from Africa to the United States. Consequently, um, it has been a low priority in the scheme of things and remains so. With a re revanchist uh, Russia on the rise or attempting to be on the rise, with China, economic and diplomatic issues ongoing, Iran, North Korea – you can see that Africa as a whole falls somewhere behind that. Now, people uh, seem to like to think that because of violent extremism, Africa is a key focus, and you see all these conspiracy theories and stories of thousands of U.S. troops all over Africa that are misreported and misstated. But Africa has been a low priority. Uh, I'm not sure I answered your question, Kobus. Can we come back to it? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, have you, um, you know, kind of connecting on to that, um, with the the focus on on China, um, particularly in Africa, have have you seen that the, that discussion kind of advance in a particular direction since the announcement? No, and actually, that's that's your point. What your question was: uh, Have we seen any changes? And and so one of my my cautions is that we're unlikely to see anything in the near term. Now, one part of this, of course, is that the U.S. government, go, federal government goes through a fiscal cycle, and we're going through the budget process right now in D.C., in which different departments and agencies in the executive branch are developing their budgets, and the presidents and the White House will submit that to Congress not too far down the road. And this is where we will see potentially some changes uh, where funding may be allocated in a different direction, but we won't see that for, for a few weeks or a few months yet. And so we won't really see any change, I don't think, short of some dramatic event um, happening in Africa. Of course, we have had a dramatic event with a cyclone in southern Africa, and I really haven't seen much activity from anybody outside of Tanzania, let alone the U.S. But uh, there has been very little tangible to come from this uh, speech in December by the National Security Advisor. And I don't anticipate seeing much there. 
when President Trump was elected, a lot of Africans asked me, they said, well, what does this mean? And of course, some people in our foreign policy establishment um, either happy or alarmed that President Trump had been elected. People concerned that it was going to be America withdrawing from the world, 19th century, you know, Monroe Doctrine, the Americas are ours, the rest of you stay away. A lot of people were concerned about that. But what I told a lot of folks, and I can, I can tell your audience, is that one thing about the United States is, you know, um, good or bad, it's kind of a leviathan. It's rather huge. The federal government spends over $4 trillion per year. That's more than half the countries of the world combined gross domestic product, if I'm not mistaken. It's a lot of resources, a lot of money. And even if we get a president who comes in who has a desire to curtail activities or curtail programs, it takes time to slow down that large ship that's coasting through the water when you change direction. So a lot of the programs and activities that are taking place in Africa and things that kind of fall under the rubric of what uh, the National Security Advisor talked about will continue regardless of what decisions are reached by the administration this fiscal year. And that's kind of the, the, the story I've told folks for a couple of years since the Trump administration has come in and by and large has played out that way. If you recall, when he first came in, there was a lot of panic. He's cutting foreign policy. He's cutting, he's cutting uh, foreign aid by 50%. Well, those, that's a political statement. Uh, in, in, in practice, if you look at the budgets, we haven't seen that sort of cut. There have been some cuts in different places, but uh, we have not seen the drastic cuts that have been proposed or discussed. Based on your posts on LinkedIn and in your writing, uh, I think it's fair to say that you're a pretty enthusiastic supporter of President Trump. And, and I'm just curious if you make that delineation between Trump's foreign policy views and Trump politics and that of conservative politics, or in your mind, are those overlapping definitions? Well, uh, if, if you got that impression from my post on LinkedIn, then perhaps I'm not writing the right way. I wouldn't call myself okay. an enthusiastic supporter of the president, although he's my he's my commander in chief. So, of course, I have to follow lawful orders and uh, support uh, position there. But uh, I, I'm not exactly uh, a person that uh, runs out uh, and and puts a state of position out there. So if it's coming across like that, I may need to take a look at my LinkedIn post. <laughs> that's not okay. my, that's okay, not my fair intent. Enough. Um, but I am, I, I am, you, you have hit on something there. I am, I, without a question, I'm unashamed. I am, I am a conservative, uh, very much so. Um, and I, I grew up in the, in the Cold War and that's when I came of age. And uh, I'm not a dinosaur or troglodyte. I certainly can move past that. Uh, but uh, that certainly has uh, had a major impact in shaping my worldview and having seen the world through those lenses and seeing the successes and failures of socialism and capitalism and such. Okay, well, let's go with conservative then. Um, what is it about conservative American politics? And one of the things that I try to explain to people is that a lot of people will talk about Trump politics as if it just appeared in the past two years, when in fact, the growth of conservative politics in the United States is a 40, 50 year process that we're seeing now. And yet it's interesting because even though conservative U.S. politics that dates back all the way to the to the Richard Nixon Kissinger era back in the early 70s is still very poorly misunderstood in part because um, the foreign policy establishment often in, in for the most part has been run. I'm afraid of getting into trouble here because I know a lot of people in the U.S. foreign policy establishment listen to our show. So I have to watch my words very carefully here. But the idea is that there is an embedded elite that's within that group at Brookings, at the American Enterprise Institute, at Heritage, uh, in the universities and whatnot. And just like what you said about funding, that funding in the U.S. government, it happens very, very slowly. So does some of the thinking within the U.S. foreign policy establishment as well. Am I still in safe territory here, Cobus? <laughs> okay. I guess my point here, the question that I would like to ask, okay, fair enough. I guess my point is, what do people misunderstand about conservative American foreign policy that you then explain, and you really want to set the record straight, as a lot of people in places like Africa and China are struggling to understand the current uh, temperature of U.S. foreign policy. Well, I think part of it is 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 the character of conservatives that takes place not just in the United States but around the world. Um, all sorts of things uh, politically or comments are made about conservatives that uh, are oftentimes not accurate. The same as the left. I mean, those on the left uh, oftentimes people character people on the far left and uh, and and say things that simply aren't true. But I think this is also complicated because people conflate international relations theory. And different schools of thought like realism, liberalism, neorealism, uh, constructivism conflate those things with political leanings, conservative and liberal. And while there, there are some things, there are linkages that fit there, it's not perfect. 
And then I think the one thing that's really confused all of this is that after George Walker Bush became president and the uh, terrorist attacks on 9-11, 2001 took place, um, the community known as the neoconservatives took hold and really drove foreign policy in a direction that uh, um, many people on the left and right were not happy with. And so an awful lot of people seem to think that the neocons are conservatives, and that's a conservative bent. And I think this whole argument gets confused. Uh, it's, so it's important uh, to make the distinction uh, about the positions and where people are. And I, I guess you'd, you'd have to – it depends on who you're talking to at any particular point. As far as uh, the policy establishment having uh, positions and, and, being, and, and perhaps being a little slow to move or being fixed positions – I would have to say that uh, one thing I've definitely noticed uh, in the last 20 years out of Washington is that it's interesting how the smart kids, um, the the really smart kids, um, are the ones who have this neat idea, and suddenly it becomes the new toy, the new thing that people talk about. Now, now I'm on thin ice, but uh, let me step out there and, and see if I fall in or not. But so, for instance, let me give an example. Um, some very smart people, and I'm not being facetious, including people I greatly respect and admire in the foreign policy community, both in the State Department, former State Department and other agencies in the federal government, and also in think tanks and academia. But some very smart people going back in the early part of the odd decade started telling this storyline, this narrative that West Africa was critically important to the United States. And why is that? Because 25% of our petroleum will come from West Africa within a decade. And that's why we must be engaged in Africa. That's what must drive our foreign policy. I must tell you, Eric and Kobus, a lot of very talented, intelligent people said this. Now, I don't know if I'm talented and intelligent, but I can't say that I questioned it from the outset. It seemed like an odd, an odd position. Even if it were true, uh, it's not as if we have hostile actors in West Africa that would um, try to deny the sale of a fungible commodity like petroleum on the world marketplace where we buy it in dollars to the U.S., of course, none of them predicted the fracking revolution and tight oil and the Bakken Basin in North Dakota and things like that. Now, today, we jump forward. The United States is the world's largest energy producer and nearly the world's largest petroleum producer. We're getting close, uh, at least in the short term. So that sort of thing played out. And I see a similar thing at work today, from my point of view, with the China and Africa and great power competition. This is the storyline today. And a lot of people from my perspective are jumping right in and seeing this. And it doesn't help when senior members of the government, whatever administration, essentially repeat this or say this, that people believe that's the case. But I think if you look at the actions of the US government, we didn't really follow through on that, that storyline. But a lot of smart people were pushing these storylines. Well, connecting to that, um, there's been, you know, some, you know, quite quite sharp expressions of, of concern um, around two specific issues in of China, China's engagement in Africa, one being China's base, first overseas base in Djibouti um, in Eastern Africa, and then, um, you know, the, the Chinese use of debt um, and with, with narratives that, China essentially uh, indebts poor countries on purpose as a kind of a form of strategic leverage. Um, how deep do you think that concern actually runs in, in the, the defense establishment in Washington? Actually, I do think that that is a deep concern, and I think there's some legitimacy to that concern, although at times I think it's a bit, um, it's a bit of a Cassandra uh, over, story overblown, but it definitely is something that uh, in the defense and the security and the diplomatic uh, quarters in Washington and in our missions abroad that people are concerned about and talking a great deal about. It's interesting when you talk about debt because uh, when I talk to my African students, of course, bear in mind that these are senior serving military officers from their own nations uh, who are, of course, in many cases, very close to the political leadership and in some cases less close. But it's interesting um, hearing the opinions and views of the Africans as well as Americans, those who know something about Africa, which, which isn't a large number, uh, to, to hear their views on this. So when I look at the, the – the, let's take the debt issue, for instance. When I look at the debt diplomacy or, or, or debt bondage, whatever you know, little term people want to apply to it, that's going on in Africa for development and China – what I have to look at is I have to look at different audiences. So, for instance, when I talk to Africans, uh, I, I try to point out that, uh, listen, you know, this is talk about great power competition from my perspective. You know what? If China gives you a good deal, if you think it's a good deal, then you should take a look at it. If the Europeans give you a good deal, you should look at it. If the Americans give you a good deal, you should look at it. If you're not happy with all those, then go, go to the African Development Bank or somewhere else to go to the open market and issue bonds. But 
But the thing about the debt is that um, it is a serious concern for many people. And the Chinese actions, the problem is a lot of these loans are opaque. No one knows the terms. They're only disclosed to the politicians and leaders who make them and the Chinese officials that make the loans. And so that's a bit of a problem, as we've seen in Djibouti and Zambia and a few other places coming up in the horizon. But the debt issue is, is something that definitely is, is occupying a lot of people's attention right now. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at WitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. I want to go back to the comments you made about the perceptions that this is the new shiny thing, the Chinese in Africa. And I guess, speaking of perceptions, the thing that people in the outside are struggling to understand about the U.S. strategy for Africa, and I'd be interested to kind of get your take on this, is on the one hand, they see the United States, where President Trump, and again, I know you don't represent President Trump, and I'm not trying to put this on you, but he tried to impose a ban on Muslim countries, which included some African countries. He has stripped Rwanda of its AGOA trade privileges. He put steel tariffs on, which adversely affected South Africa. He has you know, derisively referred to some African countries in, in less than flattering terms using uh, swear words and things like that. And then more importantly, there hasn't been a sense that he's engaged in Africa. So there's this perception that the United States just really doesn't care. And, and then on top of that, the Pentagon has said that it's going to be redeploying some of its, of its forces from Africa to other parts of the world to confront Russia and China. Uh, so again, it's just less important than it, what it used to be. And then the flip side of this is the Chinese who are fully engaged. The, you know, President Xi is making trips there regularly. He's commenting on Africa. The money is flowing in. Military engagement, political engagement on all fronts is, is active. And so we, we compare and contrast, and that's where I think some of the confusion comes from. And I guess, are we missing something in your point of view, or is there some truth to that, that the United States seems a little bit flaccid, whereas the, that's probably not the right word, but it just doesn't seem engaged, whereas the, the Chinese really seem to be motivated to engage the African side. Wow, Eric, that's a lot to unpack. Do we have a couple hours for me to address each of those points? <laughs> and I called the Americans flaccid, so that's really, I don't think, a good thing. Well, without addressing that particular aspect of your comments, well, you've given a lot to unpack there. It's uh, You'd have to go back into all those points for them, some of which I'd be happy to defend or explain, but it's kind of complicated. But I, I will concede, and, 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 and much to my con personal consternation, uh, China, I have no issue with China being active. I mean, if, if it benefits Africans, I, I'm, I'm happy about that. But uh, China, def to my consternation, China definitely is more active with the FOCA summits, with the promises of assistance, with the one, two, three, or four million undocumented, unknown Chinese running around all over Africa, filling all the Air Rwanda planes, and there's no one else on the plane except them and me. Uh, they're definitely there. They're present. If you, if you want to be involved, you've got to be there. China's definitely involved. But the thing is that the United States is also involved. It's just that people don't see it. It's other than, you know, when we work on a development project, we put a sign up, you know, from the American people, from USAID or something like that. It's, it's not something that's trumpeted or talked a lot about. You know, for instance, uh, since uh, it was from 95 to 2013, so in 18 years, the United States spent uh, nearly $98 billion in foreign assistance in Africa. You know, a lot of programs uh, were developed for Africa, particularly under the George uh, Bush administration, many of which had tremendous impact in Africa. And, and a lot of people don't even realize uh, that uh, the U.S. is even responsible for some of these programs because in many places we took a backseat and didn't talk about it. So, for instance, the PEPFAR program, President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, arguably is the single largest and most effective foreign assistance program in the history of mankind. If you look at the actual amount of money that's been allocated and spent, and about 85% of that money is spent in Africa, much of it in Southern Africa, but not, not exclusively Southern Africa. So if you look at Zimbabwe, Zimbabwe received billions of dollars, or hundreds of millions of dollars, excuse me, under that program over the last couple of decades, all the while that uh, Uncle Bob, Comrade Bob, was making arguments about kith and kin and attacking the West for undermining Zimbabwe. 
We were feeding Zimbabweans with uh, hundreds of millions of dollars of food aid and then providing medical care for uh, hundreds of thousands of Zimbabweans who otherwise would have died if they didn't have access and, to I'm sorry, just to interrupt you, but Uncle Bob, of course, referring to former dictator Robert Mugabe. Yes, hence the comrade Bob. Okay. Sorry, yes, yes. Robert Mugabe, sorry. Yes. Just want to make sure. Some of our younger listeners may not be aware of that. Keep going. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, so so, so the, the level of U.S. engagement is high. It's just not as prominent. And so when you hear things like the U.S. is disengaging from military perspective, it, it's important to put this in, in, in context. So, for instance, the United States has no permanent military bases in Africa, save Camp Lemonier, which is in Djibouti. And that is an outgrowth of the September 11th attacks in the aftermath of that, the Bush administration negotiated with the government in Djibouti to put a base there to allow us to put operators in there to take care of operations against extremists in the Arabian Peninsula, the Red Sea, and the Straits there, Hormoz, all that whole area. So they, that, that was the purpose of that. And also, it, it had an impact for East Africa as well. Now, the mission of that task force is waxed and waned. It, sometimes it's hunting terrorists and identifying. Other times it's humanitarian assistance and sort of nation-building activities. Then it's against uh, al-Shabaab in Somalia. It comes back and forth. So it's been there since 2002, and it's our only permanent base in Africa. But you see reports of 6,500 troops in Africa, and, and there's hundreds of missions going on. I see these fascinating conspiracy theory websites and blogs talking about the United States military is everywhere. Well, guess what? They've always been everywhere, and they've always been in Africa. Uh, for instance, uh, in any given moment, we probably have right now in a dozen countries in Africa, two teams of three or five soldiers who've been asked to come there by those countries to teach non-commissioned officer professional development or to hold human rights class or to teach marksmanship skills or convoy operations. And that's often spun into a narrative of the U.S. having this huge military presence. For instance, the 6,500 number that you often hear tossed around now that is predominantly the troops that are at Camp Lemonier. And that number at the base has gone up and down from 1,800 to three or 4,000 and back down, depending on what the mission is in any given time. So the U.S. is there and engaged. And when people talk about pulling back, um, I have to look back and look at the actual facts, what's on the ground. It's easy to listen to a, a political leader make a statement and then read about the newspaper and just assume that's a reality. It's much harder to look at the ground and see what's actually going on. For instance, I'll just go a little further here. When the U.S. Special Forces soldiers were killed in the Operation Niger, we had members of Congress say they didn't know about this operation. Of course, the problem with that is if you go back and look at the Africa Command commander's statement before the House Armed Services Committee and the Senate Armed Services Committee the previous year, which is unclassified and publicly available, go to Google, you can look it up. You'll see that the commander mentioned operations in Niger briefed those very members who a year later for political theater said, we knew nothing about this. Uh, in fact, they did know about it. The information's there. It's just a little harder for people because you have to pay attention. It's a big continent, lots of countries, a lot of things going on. And with this, this, this narrative of the great power competition, the focus is on China. So, you know, shifting the, the conversation to um, another but related controversy. Over the last while, we've seen a lot of concern raised in the U.S. about the influence of Chinese technology companies, especially the, the national security impact of, of these companies. Um, a company like Huawei has ex extensive work in Africa. It's, it's maybe maybe the most important provider of, of, um, of internet access to Africans. Um, how much of a security risk does the, the U.S. security establishment see that that expansion and and are we looking at um, at you know what what's been raised is this idea that um, that people who work or countries that work with Huawei might might face uh, you know difficulties in their relationship with the U.S. Um, do you see that coming up more in the the security discourse at the moment? It's definitely something that's being talked about. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, spending time with uh, a lot of the, the security folks you might be uh, thinking of that are talking about this issue. But from a policy standpoint, many people are talking about this. But it's, it's a discussion topic that's been up for a while, and it's, it's, it's not focused specifically on China or Huawei. Uh, when you think about it, um, in some respects, if you're interested in business, it seems like Ericsson, Motorola, and others have um, missed the boat, Nokia. They, they, these used to be companies that provide the backbone for mobile networks, including in Africa. And today, Huawei has like 60 or 70 percent of the uh, installed base across the continent. That's astounding. Uh, allowing yourself um, or allowing a single company or a few companies, 
regardless of where they come from, to be responsible for a major portion of the network, that, that has its own vulnerabilities and risk. And that alone is a concern for some folks. Of course, the, the, the accusations of uh, subterfuge and, um, and misdeeds by Huawei is another issue. And as you've seen it play out, uh, the Trump administration has made you know, famously issue with that, including arresting an executive from the company uh, and getting her extradited from Canada. I believe she was in Vancouver when she was extradited over um, some charges tied to that. But uh, you may have seen the reports. Uh, the French press, I think, released this uh, last year, the discovery or the claim that uh, the Chinese had bugged all of the rooms at the Afternoon Union building they constructed and that uh, all the networks were tapped and that sort of thing, the Wi-Fi and all the data was being collected. Well, I hope not. I work there, so I'm sure I, I probably said something I probably don't want folks to know at some point or other. But uh, Well, they may know it now. Yeah, I'm sure they know <laughs> it now. But, uh, yeah, here's, <laughs> that's a good point. No, but uh, there, there's definitely a risk uh, when it comes to IT, uh, regardless of where you get it from. If you're getting it from American companies, you, you have to be able to trust them. And, and the question is uh, with uh, Huawei or Huawei and others is, uh, is a question of trust and concern. And right now, uh, publicly, that's certainly playing out um, – at a disadvantageous uh, angle for the Chinese. So I'd like to close our discussion just on going back to this perception issue, because I think you've highlighted a lot of the misperceptions about the United States, whether it's the troop presence or the lack of engagement. These are complicated things. Certainly the Chinese are capturing the headlines. In substance, they may not necessarily be doing what the Americans are doing. One of the things that Kobus and I talk about a lot is that the, people fail to realize that the United States is still the largest single investor in Africa. Uh, everybody assumes that it's the Chinese. In fact, the Chinese for a long time were, were not that heavy in investment. They were always big on trade. Uh, you've talked about in terms of security engagement, also aid, uh, all of those areas, the United States is predominant and remains predominant, much more so than the Chinese. Uh, and so when we talk, when we look now forward into the next, you know, two, four, six years, we don't know who will be president again uh, in the United States in, uh, you, you know, the next election. But what is it that people need to know about U.S. foreign policy and U.S. security strategy in Africa that they may not be understanding? And, you know, particularly in the context of the Chinese. Well, the reality for U.S. foreign policy in Africa is that although it, it rarely rises to the level where it's an existential threat or a, a, a key interest, a strategic interest for the United States in the grand scheme of things, Africa does remain important to the United States for a number of reasons. We have a, a significant percentage of our population, about 13.5%, that has African origins, direct African origins. We have long-established ties. The United States is the country that pushed for the end of colonialization, the Eisenhower administration, and pretty much let the colonial powers know that the jig was up and we weren't going to support uh, colonialization continuing. People seem to forget that, but the United States was a key actor in that. And the Suez Canal crisis is what brought it to, a, to, the, to the surface once the U.S. and the Soviets engaged and forced everyone to back out of the Suez crisis. So the U.S. is involved in Africa. It does have interests, and it will stay involved. We also have a large uh, diaspora movement here more recently, a large number of hundreds of thousands of Ethiopians who came here after the revolution in 74. Uh, lots of West Africans who've migrated here in the last 20 years, uh, those who've gone to university. So the U.S. does have interest, and the U.S. will stay engaged. Vis-a-vis -vis China, this, this great power competition thing, I'm not sure how that's going to play out. But what I would say, and I'd like to say, because we've talked a little bit about security and about, secure, about, um, about diplomacy, but... When it comes to Africa and China, and this is something I've been trying to share with folks for a long time, the one place the United States is definitely missing it and not really present is when it comes to business and trade. Now, you mentioned foreign direct investment, uh, Eric. And yes, the United States continues to be the largest foreign direct investor in Africa. But let's, let's be honest, much of that's in hydrocarbons. And that's where the big money goes. It's not uh, putting money into a, a small app firm in Johannesburg that's trying to start a new application for dating or make, make money that way or starting a, a factory somewhere or agribusiness. So what you see from the U.S. from a business perspective is hydrocarbons and then the big players like Boeing selling aircraft and John Deere selling farm equipment, things like that. But you're not seeing a lot of American businesses go to Africa for a variety of reasons. A lot of American businesses still see it as a complicated place with 54 different markets, multiple languages, coups, famine, things often overblown. It's ignorance of the environment. The Chinese, it's very different. Uh, they, they started in one model and now they've moved on and they're still continuing with, with providing assistance, aid, loans, but also you see increasing numbers of Chinese who are starting businesses in Africa itself. And that's something that the United States and West is by and large not doing in Africa, starting businesses. 
and building those ties and building trade relations. And when we talk about foreign policy and China and Africa, I don't look at 2020 or 2025. I'm looking at 2050. Uh, and I have been looking at 2050 for a long time from every aspect. Uh, and now a lot of people are starting to focus on that. That's the next big story. It's now on the stage. African 2050, a population of 2.4, 2.3 billion people, one in five people on the planet being African. Uh, and so 2050 is what I'm looking at. And at the way things are going, I'm not sure if U.S. business is going to get there. Now, where are the distinct disadvantage? Because U.S. businesses are U.S. businesses. They are not state actors by and large. So aside from official development assistance, the business aspect is business. And American businessmen who show up and um, bring a bag of cash to pay a bribe can be prosecuted under U.S. law. So that's a problem. But actors from other countries, that isn't the case. And actors from other countries, say China, for instance, uh, oftentimes are working at the behest of the state, which gives the state a huge advantage. Now, whether Africans benefit from that, that's another story. They can, they may, they may not. But the challenge going forward for the United States is, I think, long term is building trade ties with what I think is the El Dorado of the consumer market in 2050, where there'll be at least 800 to a billion consumers. And if I'm around in 2050, if I'm a billionaire, it's because I invest in Africa and that's where I'm making my money. Well, that's a nice way to end on a positive note. Uh, Colonel Chris, Willi Chris Wyatt is the Director of African Studies at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And he's also a professor in the Department of National Security and Strategy and has more than three decades of professional military experience around the world, but mostly in Africa. Uh, and it was really just fantastic, uh, Colonel Wyatt, to get your perspectives on uh, you know, where we are in this, in, in, in both in terms of the United States, but also vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese and love the fact that you ended on such a positive note. We'll put a link to your LinkedIn uh, discussions that you have. Again, if you're a rugby fan, you're going to love it. Uh, also, we'll have a link to uh, Colonel Wyatt's assessment of the Bolton strategy that came out last year. And I think it's probably one of the most definitive uh, explanations of the Bolton strategy that I've seen anywhere. And I think it's a really important piece of writing because journalists, for the most part, I think, put it through the lens of the China story. And Colonel Wyatt was able to take that into a broader U.S. foreign policy and geostrategic perspective. So we'll have a link to that. Thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. And uh, it was an honor to have you on the program. Well, Eric, thank you very kindly. I do appreciate it. I hope you get an opportunity to come back and speak with you again. Uh, from Johannesburg, Kobus, uh, bye, donkey. Appreciate your time as well. Well, thank you very much. Bye, bye, donkey. Kobus, it's a little surreal to hear Colonel Wyatt talk about the communication problems that the United States is having. I mean, we've all we've ever talked about is how abysmal the Chinese are at communicating in Africa. And here... He's highlighting the fact that it's the Americans, the Americans who themselves invented soft power are struggling to communicate what they're doing in Africa, according to, to Colonel Wyatt. And my head is kind of spinning from that because, you know, no one assumes that the Americans are having a difficulty communicating. I personally take a little bit of issue with some of the things that Colonel Wyatt said. I don't think it's all a communication issue. I actually think there are some substantive policy differences that people have with the United States and specifically the Trump administration. Uh, but to his point, I do think that the United States is becoming increasingly bad at communicating what it's doing, what it stands for. And that goes back to my opening comments about what's happening out here in Asia, that people are struggling to understand what does the United States actually represent. Is this a country of free trade, open borders? Is this the country that maintained the international order for 50, 60 years? Or is this a more provincial, fear-based country that is led by, you know, a president who is not very popular and certainly doesn't seem to be engaged in Africa policy? I mean, it is, these are very, very confusing times. Yeah, I mean, I assume that they're, con that they're confusing in Africa, among others, because they're also confusing in the U.S. Um, and it's the U.S., I think, you know, as, as a country is trying to work out some of these issues for itself and, and what what its international role is going to mean, you know, in, in, the, in the coming century, especially as China, you know, takes on a larger and larger international role. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it's, it's definitely confusing. Um, I think it's additionally confusing to, to Africans because... Of you know uh, perceptions, I think that that what is on the books might not hundred percent be what is 
you know, what, what has been acted in real, in real life, the Agoa issue around Rwanda, for example, it being a good example of that, you know, kind of, of how, how a policy, you know, looks, in, in, looks one way as it's drafted and then gets used in a different way depending on, on the kind of political needs of the moment. Um, so I think, I think that, that that is additionally confusing for African countries um, and it makes it difficult for them to, to, to work out exactly what role the U.S. is playing and therefore it makes it also difficult to, to think about how to deal with the U.S. in relation to China. I'd like to close today's show with a, a plea for... M- all non-Americans listening to the show, but even to some extent Americans as well. The idea that you can learn about our culture from watching TV, listening to Beyonce, going to American movies is ridiculous. And in particular, in these days where we have changed so much over the past five and 10 years, particularly under the Obama and the Trump administrations, the culture has changed. It takes effort. The same way that I have to devote myself to studying Chinese culture, I mean, I'm constantly reading, I'm studying the language, I'm engaging with people. You never stop studying Chinese culture. It just, it's like you, what you did with Japanese culture. And we have to almost in some ways treat the United States the same way. The U.S. is a highly, highly fragmented, complex culture. People in Iowa are so radically different than they are in Florida, than in where I come from in California. And even between Northern and Southern California, there are massive differences. And understanding the variety and the complexity of these people is super important to understanding the foreign policy and why we are making decisions the way we are. But too often I find that most people around the world get quite lazy about it. And they just say, well, I know America because I watch so much media from you guys. And and that is... I just hate that. It's completely ridiculous. And so if you really want to understand where Colonel Wyatt is coming from, where President Trump is coming from, where people like me are coming from and whatnot, you got to dig deeper. You have to read books. You have to talk to people. You have to go beyond just the soft power and just the traditional kind of in pop culture, if you will. That's my, I'll get off my soapbox now, Gomez, but I just, it frustrates me to no end that people don't take the time to study us the same way that they would another culture. And I just think that's, you, it's, it's short-sighted and it's, it's, it's dangerous at this, in this day and age as well. Uh, very quickly before we go, I'd like to give uh, a shout out to the Shanghai Institute of International Studies and Dr. Zhou Yuan, who was very kind to invite me to moderate a panel there uh, last week. And uh, it was wonderful to meet all of the different stakeholders from across Africa, the African Union, the African Development Bank, uh, and then, of course, all of the former Chinese ambassadors and just a great group of people who had great discussions. Uh, and I'm just I was very honored to be a part of that. And so uh, thank you so much. And just again, I know a lot of people who attended the event are also listeners to the show. So it was a wonderful event. And I just want to thank everybody for that. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.